Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining with us for this week's podcast. As per usual, before we begin this time together, I want to take a moment, let you know a couple things that are coming up in our community. First off, today, Clyde Glass is starting our Advent series titled When He Comes Again, the Second Advent. And for the next few weeks, we're launching our Pack the Pantry initiative in partnership with the Stony Nakota First Nation, where we'll be stocking their food bank that supports Morley, Elkwood, and Eden Valley. And last year, similarly, we were able to provide 400 backpacks of school supplies. And so this is a continuing partnership with Stony Nakota to help meet the needs of people. And there are a few ways you can help give as we look to provide food and essentials for up to 200 families. First, you can donate items by bringing them to the church. And there are very specific items that we need to provide. And so if you could grab a tag off of the Christmas tree here on site at the church, or you can visit our website at southviewchurch.com. Secondly, you can pack items at our packing event on December 12th in the evening. Our website has more details. And thirdly, you can also donate money that goes to getting some of these items to make sure we fill out everything that we want to provide. The best way that, to know what's going on at Southview is by checking out our weekly viewpoint. And you can find a link to that viewpoint in the episode description of this podcast. And if you're new with us here in this digital space, then we'd love to hear from you. And you can find an online connection card at the bottom of that viewpoint, along with a prayer request form so that we can support and join you in prayer. Additionally, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. But now today, no matter how you're joining with us, may each of our hearts be open and expectant because God is here and Jesus invites us to bring all that we are and all that we're currently carrying to him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's seek the face of God together. Hello, friends. So glad we can be joined together here and for those joining together online as we move in the season of Advent. And here we gather, we come uh, to pray to our God, to receive from him and let him feed us in his word and then the table of communion together. So glad you can be joined in together today. Now, uh, last weekend was our global missions weekend, if you were with us. And, and let me just say regarding that, if God did stir your heart to consider serving overseas as we walk through that time together, I would encourage you to let us know. I mean, either call one of our pastors or email us, maybe send us a Realm post or fill out a connection card, go to the information center. Just let us know so that we can be of any help we can as you seek to discern how God might be prompting you in this journey. Now, today, though, uh, we begin a new teaching series in our continuing study of the book of Revelation. So during the four weeks of Advent, we're going to join with followers of Jesus around the globe in remembering the first Advent, the first coming of Jesus, the one in Bethlehem. But also, we join in this Advent season preparing for the second Advent, the second coming of Christ. Now, the book of Revelation might initially seem to be an odd section of Scripture to study during Advent, but it truly provides guidance profoundly so an encouragement to us as we do look towards that second Advent when Jesus comes again. 
So turn to the book of Revelation, if you would, with me. And as we come to this, I appreciate, read from one writer this past week who put it this way. Why did God give us the book of Revelation? If you had asked me this question when I was a young Christian, I might have said, to help us discover when Jesus will return to the earth. Or to help us make sense of the events in the Middle East. Or to give us nightmares about the tribulation so we don't get lax and miss the rapture. Or he gave us a book to give Christians something to argue about. Or apparently, you could say it seems at times, he gave it to confuse us. Now, I would imagine many of us might have echoed those ideas from our own previous experiences of this book. But as we move through our study of this book of Revelation, I hope we can all say that our answer now would be different from those. I hope we have seen that God gave this apocalypse to John in order to bless us, to do us good, to unveil Jesus to us, to convey his grace, to give us hope, and truly to fortify our hearts as we follow him. Okay, so before we turn, return and read from Revelation Day and move into our study of this book's final chapters, I, I want to do a bit of review first, all right? I, I want to do a review of six of the principles that guide us as we come to this book. Now, we have talked about these really kind of along the way in our studies thus far, but I want to review partly because I want these principles to be in our minds every time we come back to read Revelation. Okay, so six principles. And if it would be of any help, Dr. Dennis Johnson in his commentary on Revelation, he summarizes these and other principles as well and, and goes into more detail with them if that would be of help for you. And additionally, if you haven't been with us in our previous studies of Revelation, you go to our website, can watch or listen to the messages where along the way we've been looking at these principles together. All right, so six principles. We're going to go through these kind of quickly. Some of the principles we looked at, a first principle would be this. We need to remember that the book of Revelation is given to what? Unveil. I mean, the name of the book itself, the revelation, the unveiling, it literally means, suggests that its purpose is to take things that have been mysterious or unclear and make them clear, to unveil. So really think about this. If, if the book only makes mysterious things more mysterious, if it primarily brings confusion, then that might be a clue we're having the wrong approach as we come to it. Okay, then a second principle we need to remember again is that Revelation is a book to be seen. I mean, by that meaning that this book typically communicates truth via symbol. It, it's not really written like an historical account because the literary genre it is, as we've talked about, is prophetic. It's apocalyptic. And, and that's why John, much of the time in this book, writes more like a poet than a historian in this way. So really to primarily interpret this book literally is to just ignore its genre because John saw visions and those visions were filled with symbolic images. Okay, then a third principle we talked along the way would be this. We need to remember, again, kind of tied to what we just said, 
that numbers in Revelation are usually symbolic. They're usually symbolic. And, and we've seen this along the way, if you remember, that like the numbers three or six or seven or 12, and really they're multiples then of 24, of 666, of 144,000. And we're going to encounter this again in these closing chapters with the mention of the numbers like 12 and 1,000 and 144. Because again, numbers usually function symbolically in Revelation. Okay, then there's a fourth principle we've looked at. We need to remember, truly, Revelation only makes sense in light of the Old Testament. Now, to put that another way, the key to understanding the symbolism of the book of Revelation is the Old Testament, truly. So we're not really free to take the symbols of Revelation and just kind of interpret them any way we feel like. But rather, we are to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture for us. Because the Old Testament, and really in many cases the New Testament also, it functions as the key and the guide to our interpretation of this book. So therefore, to look just to current or contemporary events as the keys to interpreting this book, really that's misguided. But to look to the rest of Scripture to interpret it, that is wise. Okay, then a fifth principle we want to remember as we go into these last chapters. Revelation was written about what must soon take place. And, and truly, this is to be understood not firstly from our vantage point, living in 2022, but from the vantage point of those who originally received this letter from John back in the first century A.D. I mean, we really need to remember that it was to them that John wrote at the start of this letter, Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place for the time is near. And then we are going to see the same thing, very same thing repeated at the very end of this letter. Revelation 22.6 says this, the Lord has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. So that's really a hint to us that any interpretation of Revelation that pushes the fulfillment of the majority of the prophecies contained within this book far off into the future from the perspective of the first century audience, that kind of perspective should be viewed really with suspicion. And now, truly, without question, some things in this book, as we're even going to see today, are about the time of the end, the second coming of Christ, the final judgment, and the arrival of this new heaven and new earth. But the references in this book to that time of Christ's return they're really fairly easy to identify and distinguish. Because most of this book describes how things will be for followers of Jesus in the whole span of time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. Okay, then the last one I want to touch on. A sixth principle is this. Okay, as we come back to it, we need to remember Revelation is written for a church under attack. We need to remember that the objective of the letter, as we've already seen, 
is to urge the church and followers of Jesus to persevere or to return to faithfulness in the face of the challenges, the opposition, the suffering, the temptations, and eventual persecution they are walking through. I mean, the book of Revelation, it really is. Listen, the book of Revelation is an expansion on the words of Jesus when he said this to his disciples. This isn't from John 16.33. Doesn't this sound like Revelation? I have said these things to you, Jesus said, that in me you may have peace in the world. You will have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Okay, so the book of Revelation then, it really portrays the church as being under ongoing tribulation, really constant assault. And, and that includes spiritual assault and warfare with spiritual forces of darkness. Now, the type and intensity of the assault, it will vary from time to time, from place to place. But the church, the body of Christ, will always experience pressure, including the pressure to conform to the patterns and thinking of the world, right? Which is just what Paul said in Romans chapter 12. So that's why the book of Revelation says to Christ's followers, says to the church, really in all ages, persevere, overcome, conquer, and be assured in all of it, the ultimate victory has already been won by Jesus. Amen? Okay. So those are principles we've talked about, and I want to remind us of as we come back to this. And why this long introduction and review, Clyde? For one, again, so that these principles we just talked about are guiding you whenever you read this book. And second, want to review so that we finish this book strong. Because we are coming to portions of the book of Revelation where we're going to need to apply those principles so we don't interpret these writings badly. Okay, so with those principles in our mind, let's come to our Revelation text today. And again, now two weeks ago, we looked at the judgment brought by God against his enemies, the beast and Babylon, the great prostitute we read of. And because... There will be a day when our God will bring justice. He will make right all that has been wrong. Okay, now when we start coming to the end of Revelation, chapter 18 through the end of chapter 20, there really is a lot of repetition, you might notice, as you read through these chapters. As John is given visions of the second advent again, when Christ comes again. And then in Revelation 19, we begin with this vision of a great multitude that is crying out in worship in response to God's judgment against all evil. And they're worshiping by singing. They're singing hallelujah, salvation and power and glory belong to our God. And then right out of that scene, we read of the worship continuing. So we're in Revelation 19. As we come to it, remember, friends, this is a word of God. And let's pick it up beginning in verse 6. And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb 
has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is a righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And then, and I love this part, I fell down at the angel's feet to worship him, to worship the angel. Because being face to face, even with a messenger of God, an angel, was so awe-inspiring that John was drawn to worship him, to worship an angel. So friends, can you imagine when we are face to face with Jesus? Can you imagine? Look at verse 10. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but the angel said to me, you must not do that. Don't worship me. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. So therefore, worship God. Worship him. For the testimony of Jesus, that is a spirit of prophecy. Okay, now in, in this account of Christ's return, our, our passage day really has woven through it and provides a central image or symbol of the salvation that's offered to us and the future that's offered to us in Jesus. And that central image, if you caught it already, is of a groom and his bride. It's of this marriage supper of the Lamb, the marriage supper of Jesus. Okay, so if we're going to understand this central symbol here of this marriage supper and of the bride and groom, it would really help us to know what a marriage and a marriage supper looked like in the day that John wrote this, in the day that Jesus revealed this. Because truly, although marriage in any era has some kind of common elements to it, there are also very significant and clear differences from era to era regarding marriage. I expected an amen there for some reason, but didn't get it. Okay, so for example, let's take this. In Jesus' day, you might know that the first step in a marriage was actually the betrothal. It's, it's what we kind of tend to call now the engagement. And we'd say that, well, that doesn't sound very different, except that while engagements in our day are taken seriously, they're not ultimately or legally binding. So in other words, if you're engaged today, you can still break off the wedding. You're, you're not married really until the wedding ceremony. It's still a very painful thing to break an engagement, but you're not legally bound in any way. So today, you don't really need to divorce from an engagement. But not so in Jesus' day, in John's day. Because in that ancient day, a betrothal, it was actually a legally binding commitment. And it required a bill of divorce to revoke it. And we know a story connected to that reality in this time of year, don't we? We know the story, for example, when Joseph was faced with the news that his betrothed, Mary, was pregnant. And it wasn't through him. So therefore, he would have to get a bill of divorce to break off his betrothal to Mary. Because although the wedding hadn't taken place, 
they were already viewed as married. And, and that's really an important picture to keep in mind when we read in this passage of this fulfillment of the final wedding day of Christ, the groom, and his bride, us, the church, right here in Revelation 19. Because again, to be betrothed in that day was to be married. It was legally binding. Even though you didn't yet live together, even though the wedding hadn't taken place. Because there was this period of time when you waited. You were betrothed to one another. You were viewed as married. But you waited for the fulfillment of the wedding day. Okay, so let me ask you a question. Let's just reflect on this a bit. Okay, so in John's day, when the betrothal had taken place, so okay, so we are sealed, we are pledged, we are waiting for the wedding, even while we live apart. What would the bride do during that season of waiting? I mean, I think on, on one extreme, the bride could say, well, I mean, we're going to have the wedding, we'll eventually fulfill our marriage, but while I'm waiting here, I'm just going to live however I want. I'm going to date who I want. I mean, do what I want to do, kind of. I mean, that would be one kind of bride. Who really could say, that's not truly a bride. Because that really is apparently a sham relationship. She clearly doesn't understand the first thing about her identity as a bride. Or another approach for a bride, which I think would indicate she truly has a conception, she understands her bridal identity, would be that the time of waiting would be viewed as a time of preparation for life together. It'd be a time to more fully understand and grow to know even more deeply the groom, to have the relationship deepen and mature. I mean, even during the time of waiting, so that when it's time for the fulfillment of marriage in the wedding and living life together, it's, it's not some massive leap, but it's really just kind of the natural next step of what has been being formed in both of them along the way. And I'm sharing this because, friends, if our faith is in Jesus as the bride of Christ, Living right now on this side of Revelation 19, remember, we already are pledged to Christ. You are betrothed to Christ. From a biblical point of view, we are then, through faith, already married to Christ. Even though, due to our physical existence right now, we don't yet live with the groom. We don't live with Christ the way we one day will in the life to come. I mean, the marriage that we have with Christ as his followers, as his bride, it hasn't yet been fulfilled in life together eternally. But that fulfillment is a celebration we are reading about here in Revelation 19 that is coming one day. It is coming one day. So again, the question for us is what do we do while we wait? And again, similarly, I suppose some could respond by saying, well, while I'm waiting for that day, I'm going to kind of live any way we want. I mean, I'm Christ. I prayed the prayer. But it doesn't mean I can't live however I want. And, and then I'll be Christ once the wedding happens, once this life to come happens. 
And truly, again, I'd question if you're truly the bride. Because apparently you don't understand the first thing about your identity as the bride of Christ. I mean, because if we truly are the bride of Christ, we then understand that this life is a time when I prepare my heart, when I prepare my mind, when I wash the garments of my life clean in him. And I learn increasingly about fidelity to him, faithfulness to him, about devotion to him. And I then, while in this time of waiting, I have things formed in my character then so that on that day, on that day, the fulfillment of the wedding and wedding feast will then just flow out of who he has already formed me to be by his Holy Spirit and who I am and live out of in him. Because I want to remind you again today, friends, through faith in Jesus, you, we, are his bride. Okay, then. Then another historical kind of cultural reality about marriage in Jesus' day that I, I think kind of helps us understand the, this picture here a little better. And, and it's that in Jesus' day, commitments to marriage and to be married, they, they would often be made to people you had never seen. Now, for most, if not all of us, that sounds or seems a little bizarre if you take social media out of the question. But again, it happened fairly often in biblical times. Can you think of any examples? Anyone's mind go to Genesis 24? I think that'd be a good example of this. Because if you remember Genesis 24, that was when Abraham's son Isaac was ready to take a wife. So we read there that Abraham chose one of his most faithful and long-serving servants. He was a man named Eleazar. And he sent Eleazar out to find a suitable wife for Isaac back in his original homeland. So Eliezer was to be a matchmaker, essentially. So Eliezer then, the Bible tells us, he went to the city of Nahor in Mesopotamia, where he met Isaac's future bride, Rebekah. Now, just keep something in mind as we reflect on that story. Just in, in your mind, try being Rebekah in your mind in the story, the future bride. Because Isaac, he is an image of Jesus in the story, the groom. So just keep in mind that when Rebecca met Eleazar, she again had never met or seen Isaac. She knew little or nothing about Isaac. So again, Eleazar comes to her and he begins to describe Isaac to her, to introduce Isaac to her. For the very first time, simply through his words. Didn't have Instagram, no way to communicate a picture in that day. And he begins then to give testimony about who Isaac is, about his character, his nobility, his worthiness, and why it is that Rebekah could truly trust him, and why it is that Rebekah one day will find him to be her true love, that he will be devoted to you, Rebekah, even though you've never met him face to face. He will care for you, and he will be to you a faithful husband. And then we can kind of imagine, as you imagine, what did that scene look like? We can imagine Eliezer going on and really in a variety of ways describing Isaac to Rebecca. And you kind of wonder what he said. Like, okay, let me tell you what he looks like. Let's start there. Let, let me tell you about his heart. Let me tell you of his grace, let me, about his strength, about his wealth. And let me tell you that 
although this is not the reason to marry him, but you as his bride, you will inherit all the wealth of his father. You will get all of his father Abraham's wealth. I mean, it must have been a fascinating conversation, right? But through it, whatever all it was that was said, when the time finally came for a decision, Rebecca, in essence, said yes. She said yes to this unseen Isaac. And again, in the realm of our contemporary lives, those kind of marriage arrangements seem to us as maybe shocking or maybe even a bit foolish. But what she said to the witness, to the testimony of Eliezer about who Isaac was, was in essence, I believe that I can trust this groom. That he is who you say he is. That he will love me and I will love him. For as she heard of him through Eliezer, her heart was drawn to him. And she did come to trust him, to love him, even before she saw him face to face. I'm sure you're picking up on the correlation. Because truly, that is an image of our relationship with our groom. Who, all, although we've not yet looked physically into his face, we already love him, don't we? And we greatly rejoice with a joy inexpressible, full of glory, waiting for the glorious appearing of our God, Savior, and of our groom, Jesus Christ. And, and I want to nudge us with this from God's word because I think one of the great battles and great challenges that we face in this life of following Jesus I think one of the great battles is for us to hold on to and live from the reality of our new identity in Jesus. Which for one, is that you again, through faith in him, you are betrothed to Jesus. And friends, we who are betrothed to Christ are betrothed to a not yet seen groom. Something like Rebecca was to Isaac. And, and think about this in your own life. Think about that the Holy Spirit prompted an Eliezer in your life. I mean, perhaps for you it was a friend. Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was a teacher who was the one who first testified to you about Jesus. And, and they then were the source who spoke to you or revealed to you the wonder, the invitation, the, the strength and grace, the nobility, the trustworthiness of the Son of God, this carpenter named Jesus. Or perhaps really the Eliezer in your life was God's word. Perhaps this was a tool God used to prompt you to understand Jesus. This was perhaps the tool that testified to you about Christ. And then to this invitation of Jesus, you, like Rebecca, said yes. Or perhaps you're here today and you're still considering his invitation. And if that's the case for you, we're just so glad you're with us. And we want to speak to you, to try to draw an accurate picture to you of this wonder who is Jesus. Because today, friends, as we move into Advent, I want you to hear again 
that one day that groom is returning for you. He is returning for you. And if you wonder, what will that day look like? Listen to how it's described in Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. And his eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, many crowns. And he has a name written on it that no one knows but himself. But then verse 16, but on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. This is his name. King of kings, Lord of lords. And he will do, beloved, what he said he will do. For he is who his word declares him to be. He is for you faithful and true. And so, beloved, while we wait for our groom, while we wait for the king of kings and lord of lords to return again, he invites us, he calls us to prepare ourselves to daily grow in our relationship with him. And in expectation of one day sitting down at this marriage supper of the Lamb with him, he then invites us to come as often as we can to this foreshadowing of that marriage supper, to the table of communion. Because this is a reality. Every time we come to this bread and cup, this is supposed to be the reality. When we come to this bread and cup, then we not only look to the past to remember the wonder of what Christ has accomplished for us through his cross and through his empty tomb. We not only receive spiritual nourishment in this present moment through work of his Holy Spirit when we receive this meal, but also, in addition to the past and present, every time we come to this table, we are to then look to the future. We are to look with expectancy towards a feast, this marriage supper, that will take place for you and me in the life to come. Because as we are here, this meal is a means. Truly, it's for reorienting our lives around the promise that he is going to return triumphantly and we will then be with him, living together eternally. So on this first weekend of Advent, if that is your hope, I invite you to receive the bread and cup. And if you want that hope, I invite you to just in even a silent prayer, call out to him. Turn trust in Jesus. And then with that heart of faith, I invite you to receive the bread and cup. Because, oh, how blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Amen? So let's take of this foreshadowing of it. And as we come to it, Father, we would ask that as we come and break bread together in this very different form, as we lift the cup together, we pray you would cause us to be nourishment right now in the present for us. We pray you would stir our hearts to remember what he's accomplished in the past for us. And Father, we come to this now in expectancy of what awaits us as our groom returns triumphant. So I invite you, friends, to take the cup you received when you came in and just pull back that very top layer. Pull out the piece of bread. Let's hold on to it for a moment.
And I remind you, there will be a day when far beyond this bread and this cup, you will sit down to a feast with your king, with your Lord, because the body of Christ was broken for you. Take and receive from him. And then with the cup. We come to the cup again, bringing all we've been walking through in the past week, month, year, bringing it all to him because he prepares a meal for us, a table for us in the presence of our enemies, the things we battle and are challenged with in life. And we have hope regardless what enemies we face in life because the blood of Christ was poured out for you. So take and receive from him. Amen. Will you pray with me, friends? And Father, as we speak of the wonders of what is yet to come, I would pray again, by work not just of our minds that you have blessed us with, but by a work of your Spirit, you would reveal to us the wonder of what is ahead. We look with joy back to your first coming the first coming of your son. And Father, in this moment, we look ahead, waiting for his return, praying you would prepare us in this season of preparation to walk faithfully as his bride. And we ask this in the authority you've given us in his name, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And all God's people say, amen. Amen. We stand with me, friends. So glad you could be here again, and for those joining online, glad we can be joined together. I encourage you to join in next weekend. We're going to be looking at, finally, the millennium. You've been waiting for it, haven't you? Hope you can come back as we look for that in the next chapter. And also, if I can give an encouragement to parents of young children uh, right now, this Wednesday is our family Advent experience. And I know as a parent, we often speak, parents are the primary discipler of your children. How do you do that? This is a great tool for that. And, and you just need to register for it. You can do it at the information center or send in a realm post or email or call the church office by tomorrow to let them know this is such a worthy time to guide your children in preparing for the Advent season together. Hope you can be part of that. And, and now as you walk into whatever this week is going to hold for you again, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more beyond all we can ask or imagine, according to his power, that is at work within us this week. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen? Let's walk in that grace and go in the peace of Christ. Amen.